0: Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in a digital age. This is episode 70, and today I'm joined by Richard Lee, Jr., professor of philosophy at DePaul University. Rick has published extensively on medieval uh, and early modern philosophy, the Frankfurt School, and social and political philosophy. He has published two books, The Force of Reason and The Logic of Force by Paul Graves, in 2004, and Science, the Singular, and the Question of Theology, which is also Paul Grave in 2002, and he's also published uh, essays in journals such as Telos, Hobbes, Studies, Bivarium, and the Graduate Faculty Philosophy Journal. His forthcoming book is entitled Thinking of Matter. Rick has been on the Digital Dialogue before, and I uh, invite you to listen to episode 30, on the logic of force, where we discussed his work on Hobbes's materialism. There, I think you'll hear some of the inchoate ideas fleshed out further in the forthcoming book. What brings him to the digital dialogue today is, in fact, precisely what brought us together as friends more than 20 years ago, the teaching and work of Richard J. Bernstein. This weekend, a group of his students came together to celebrate his life and work in a conference called Thinking the Plural, organized by Eduardo Mendieta, Chair of the Philosophy Department at Stony Brook, and Marsha Morgan, uh, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Muhlenberg College. The papers delivered this weekend will be published in a fest- trip for Bernstein entitled Thinking the Plural, Richard J. Bernstein's Contributions to American Philosophy, co-edited, co-edited by Marsha Morgan and Jonathan Pickle. So welcome, Rick, to the Digital Dialogue.
1: It's great to be back.
0: So I think the way, great way to begin might be to just talk a little bit about when we first met in that uh, Wittgenstein Tractatus' course uh, um, so many years ago. I guess that must have been in, two, in 1992, maybe the fall?
1: It, it could be. Your memory's probably better than mine. It was well, a long I- time ago. Right. I just know when we went, when I
0: started at, at the New School in 1991, but I don't think I took that class until my second year, so I was a little uh, intimidated by taking a Bernstein class. I needed a year under my belt.
1: <laughs> oh, so you did that year by taking Sherman classes? <laughs>
0: no, actually. Uh, that was even more intimidating. I just pulled the Band-Aid off that fall uh, of 2000, uh, 1992 and took took Bernstein and Sherman at the same time, which actually you and I were talking about this, this weekend, as a, as a kind of good combination of of two faculty members with very different approaches, but all but two professors who were just tremendously uh, important to both of us.
1: Yeah, I mean, they each, in their own way, had a tremendous impact on me. I mean, Schurman was not someone that you would initially think of as a sort of democratic teacher. I mean, he lectured um, constantly, even in seminars. But I mean, I learned a lot from that, and and I've taken some of his style. Bernstein was um, always a lot more inviting and open, and we were sort of, we got the sense that we're struggling together with the ideas and the texts. Um, also productive, but in a dramatically different way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the way, um, I mean, I wouldn't characterize Sherman's pedagogy as inviting us into uh, into the text I mean he his invitation to the text was to perform a kind of reading and you and you learned by just kind of being uh, in the presence of that and and being transformed by it but with Bernstein we really were invited to sort of take up the text in a specific kind of way and uh, engage with with it not only as a as a uh, work of writing but also engage with the spirit of
1: it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I learned from Schurman the, the sort of the seriousness and the amount of work it takes to engage with uh, the material and with Bernstein I learned a lot about um, the sort of um, practice, I mean he sort of performed that struggle for us in public whereas Schurman presented the fruits of that labor.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a good way of putting it. So, I mean, I think, I just remember that first uh, first class, actually we were talking about this this weekend, that first class on the Wittgenstein class, Bernstein asked you to to give the first presentation, and I said, oh, okay, this this guy, Rick Lee, has got to, got to be a serious person if Bernstein's asking him to give the first presentation.
1: Yeah, I think he always had a, a kind of respect for um, people who did medieval philosophy because he thought, like, if you can do that, and if you could make it, uh, as he put it this weekend, if you could make that interesting, then you must really have some skill.
0: Yeah, I think that one of the things that's, that's uh, great about Bernstein is that, you know, the range of his uh, of his interests. But uh, we can, we probably should get into that with regard to the, the kind of range of papers that we heard this weekend. But uh, before we do that, I, I just want to talk a little bit more about, you know, the, the concrete terms of his pedagogical uh, practice because he really um, he had a way of of drawing you into the into the text and into a, an engagement with it that was uh, on the one hand, perplexing. I mean, it brought you into the, the perplexity of it, but it also it, it never left you, you know, swimming helplessly with, without any hope of uh, clarification.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true and I, I think, I mean, part of it was that um, he would allow you the freedom to to struggle um, and sort of uh, help you clarify your, your own struggle with difficult material. I mean, we were in a, te- a class on the Tractatus, which is not the easiest material to work through. Um, but he also did that, and we talked a bit about that this weekend. Um, he he also helped you with your struggle by sort of seriously um, engaging you, and I mean he was not always so gentle, but somehow you always felt safe, like he was challenging you because this material mattered and we should get some clarity on it.
0: Yeah, one of the things that he said in his uh, closing lecture that uh, is related to this and was poignant for me was, you know the the endeavor to see the argument or the position of, an, of another in the best possible light. So you always had, however critical he was, and he, he was critical, I mean, there's no doubt about it that he was saying hard, um, critical things to, to people. But it was, it was never um, with the intention of knocking you down or knocking uh, even the argument down in a way. It was really more in this kind of spirit of making it better. You can make it better. This is not quite convincing. This is... This needs to be fleshed out further. There's you're, you're slippage over, you know, between these concepts. Those are the kinds of things that he would he would uh, prompt you with.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, he I got from him because of that um, a, a tremendous respect for clarity. And I also saw the difficulty in being clear. I mean, to be to write and speak and think clearly requires a tremendous amount of understanding but I think it comes from that kind of openness um, to you know putting the other or the text in the best possible light I think that's what allows him to speak so clearly I I think by the way not to get too political but I think that's why some people in the so-called continental world don't take him as seriously as I think they should
0: because of the clarity and and uh, the, his his attempt to articulate things not only clearly but all, uh, also in in um, in terms that are accessible.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a a contingent of our colleagues who think that if it's clear, it must not be deep.
0: <laughs> right, in the good Adornoian tradition.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know he, I mean, there again too, you had a you had a kind of contrast with 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 Rainer Sherman. Um, uh, although Sherman too was clear, uh, I mean, but of course he had a, a vocabulary that you had to learn and find your way into, uh, right. whereas I think Bernstein was much more uh, willing to try to take up the language of the thinker with whom you were, we were reading or we were engaged and, and, and try to take that vocabulary on and, and try to make sense of that.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So, I mean, one of the themes of the uh, weekend was pluralism. The whole uh, conference was called Thinking the Plural. And, um, you know, we really had a tremendous uh, um, uh, group of uh, presenters giving papers on uh, everything from uh, sellers to uh, John William Miller. Uh, Katie Taratakis did that at the end. To Husserl, to Duns Scotus, your paper on Duns Scotus, to Hegel, Karen Eng gave a paper on Hegel.
1: So we we had uh, um, just not to interrupt, but all the way to the 21st century with your paper on ethics in a dig- digital age.
0: Yeah, that's right, and 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 drawing there, drawing really strongly on um, American pragmatism, which actually surprised Bernstein a little bit because I. I, I I sat in on his uh, pragmatism class after I was done with coursework, and, and uh, that was my first introduction to pragmatism, but I never took pragmatism with him per se, so I think he was a little surprised to see so much purse in my paper.
1: I had a course with him on pragmatism that in which we read Habermas and Gadamer.
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think for a while there in the early… Uh, 90s he was he was really doing that that new wave of, of pragmatism
1: yeah yeah that was capturing his soul attention then
0: yeah exactly and then I think that the course that I sat in on he gave a much more a much broader sort of um, uh, swath of the history of pragmatism returning back to those early texts of Peirce and and, uh, and James in particular and then moving from there I mean I think that the semester did end up with with, uh, with people like Rarity and Habermas, but um, it really began there and it was a great course. I mean, I think it set me on a path to, to uh, do some of my own work in that area and then, you know, when I got to Penn State, of course, um, the, the tradition of American pragmatism here has uh, just furthered my interest in, in that and particularly Pers. I mean, you and I have talked a lot about uh, purse's role and I could hear a lot of Perth in your paper.
1: Yeah, oh yeah. Well, I I mean you obviously don't read the footnotes, but the footnotes are filled with references to purse. But I mean this was part of the way in which um, his pluralism uh, means that um, you follow an issue and the boundaries between American pragmatism, continental, analytic, they don't matter. You go where the issue takes you. And so I think those of us who studied with him have a um we have a way of proceeding that okay, if Purse is helping me, then I have to go to Purse, and if Derrida is helping me, then I go to Derrida, and I think sometimes I don't know if you feel this, but the so-called outside world um, doesn't always quite understand that, um, and they think we engage in these strange combinations, but they're not combinations. They're just you know this is what pursuing philosophy as a real pluralist means. You pursue the issue and it doesn't matter who joins the conversation.
0: Yeah, and I mean I think that really allows him to uh, bring people into conversation with one another that you wouldn't normally expect uh, and and that seem uh, irreconcilable in certain ways. I mean if you look at his his um, essays, he's got, you know, all kinds of people from both sides of the tradition talking to each other, both sides of the continental analytic divide talking to each other, and, and bringing their insights to bear on a specific issue, um, and, and he's able to really show that there, that there, there may be different languages, different sort of um, mindsets or approaches, but really the underlying issue is the same.
1: Yeah, and I think I mean that ties up with a point you made earlier, namely this um, putting the the text or the argument in the best possible light. He's a very good translator in that sense. That is uh, not you know from French to English or German to English, but in the sense, Derrida may have this vocabulary, and I'm not going to get caught up in the terms. I'm and and therefore I could put him in conversation perhaps with someone like purse or Habermas or, or so on because I'm not gonna get caught up in the terms um, and I'm gonna translate those in order to facilitate a, a dialogue yeah,
0: I mean, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about your paper because I thought you did that. You, you performed that really well with, uh, a, a, you know, starting off with with Adorno and going to Dunskaudas and then coming back to issues, you know, in Adorno. And that's not something that uh, that you see often. I mean, well, actually, you're the only one I ever see doing that kind of that kind of thing.
1: Well, I—I I mean, I—you're the—I'm the only one, maybe, who does that vis-a-vis medieval philosophy. Wow. I think a lot of us do it in relation to Kant or Hegel or Aristotle or Plato. Um, but I—I I mean, for me, the—the the issue is—I—I um, I often characterize myself as a historian of philosophy, but I—I um, I add to, always to that that I'm not a zookeeper. And I mean by that, I'm not interested in the history of philosophy as like various exhibits. Like, oh, look how cute they were in the Middle Ages. They thought there were angels. And oh, look, Thales had this stupid idea that everything is from water. Um, I mean, if you're just going to, you know, keep zoo exhibits, then I I say stop reading the history of philosophy. And so for me only reason to keep reading Duns Scotus is if there's something of import and interest there, and and that can happen in many ways. And for me, what was interesting was I was trying to think through this issue that Adorno raised for me, um, namely um, how can we hold together the sort of the the need we have for general and universal concepts, while all the while recognizing what he calls the non-identity between the concept and that which is conceived by means of the concept and I think Dunsco to still today has things to contribute to this conversation I think by the way Peirce taught us that if only we listened to what purse had to say about it and so I could add purse to that conversation as well as Deleuze and and several others um, so I mean that's my approach was um, why is this important for Adorno, and is there something we could learn about why it's important for Adorno by putting him in conversation with Don Scotus?
0: Yeah, and I think I mean one of the things that is uh, that is tremendously um, uh, important about the way um, sort of Bernstein taught us to, to read text is that um, that. Uh, there, w- there never was a, a zookeeping element to it there was there it was always about um, trying to think your way into the ideas of these historical figures in in their own context to see both the timelessness of the questions that they were asking and but also the the timeliness of the way they were asking the questions and what resources or insights they had that uh, are eclipsed by you know the conditions under which we're now reading things so right you know, um, with regard to somebody like Aristotle or the Greeks, you know, it, it was always, okay, take, let's, let's look at what, what thinking was like um, before Kant, before the modern subject had emerged, and, we, you know, all of the things through which we kind of um, read, you know, we necessarily have to read things now because of, uh, of the, the power of those thinkers, of those modern thinkers. Um here now we have access to not to not some impoverished thinking in the Greeks, but uh some rich thinking that actually has insights that we, we we just uh need to need to learn from now.
1: Right. Yeah, um and I think in in a strange way, um in uh at least one essay of his that I can think of and the title escapes me, he sort of challenges uh Habermas to be more pragmatic than Kantian, Um, and I think in relation to Gadamer, he often will make claims that, well, Gadamer is a kind of pragmatist, but I think I would challenge him to work that in the other direction, that he's actually made pragmatism more hermeneutic, Um, and I think there are important there's a a separate hermeneutic contribution to his thinking that is not just it can't be totally unpacked from out of the pragmatic tradition.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think the, the place that I see that um, resonating is in um, Bernstein's account of phrenesis in Gadamer. Obviously that that notion of phrenesis is so important, and the application coming out of Truth and Method in, in Gadamer, and um, Bernstein really, really uh, hones in on that idea in his account of, um, uh, of Gadamer's work, and it fits so nicely with Bernstein's earlier earliest engagement with the idea of praxis. And so praxis is always um, a very I mean, for Bernstein just an extremely rich concept that um, extends from uh, normal actions that we would think of in in a kind of canonical way um, to readings of text and engagement, you know, uh, dialogue. With one another, and I think that's a, a really powerful point. In fact, one of the things that I uh, wanted to talk to you about—we didn't get a chance to do this um, over the weekend—was, you know, his very strong. The, on Saturday, he was—I uh, think he might have been responding to Jonathan Pickles' paper about um, the distinction between praxis and poiesis, and the he was he was adamantly rejecting the uh, ability to hold that distinction uh, strongly that Arendt seemed to uh, articulate in, in her work.
1: Yeah, I think so, and and I think for him, um, I, if I recall correctly, he, he raised that refusal to make that distinction um, in the direction of um, saying that for him if you ask the question, can we make the world better through acting. For him, the answer has to always be yes, and that somehow for him, that yes is related to the um, instability of the distinction between praxis and poiesis.
0: Yeah, I mean the the thing that ha- had me. Well, first of all, so I mean that brings up the issue of. Of the what I would call his realistic optimism, although I think some people think of it as as naive. But I think you want anyone who's remotely optimistic runs that <laughs> runs that risk of being naive, but uh, or being at least uh, uh, identified as naive. But but the thing that I appreciated about the the need to um, hold on to the connection between uh, poiesis and praxis, between sort um, a more instrumental understanding of um, of action and let's say a, a more a liberated conception of action is that uh, if we forget that um, thinking and speaking and acting all of which are wrapped up with one another have instrumental effects and are instrumental also in what in, 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 however that emancipatory they might also be um, we're, we're going to lose, the real question of power, the question of violence, and some of these other issues that are critical for us to hold in mind even as we try to put our words uh, into practice in ways that are um, empowering and healthy and liberating.
1: Yeah, and I think, um, I mean he only gave some indications of this I think in that same discussion period, but I began to see that um, part of his critique of um, Arendt um, is he's a little bit, while understanding why she's worried about the encroachment of the social in the modern period, and in the human condition, I, I agree with him. I, I think there's tremendous problems with her criticism and rejection of the social, but for him, this, his rejecting that criticism and uh, and her own rejection was part and parcel with this notion and he said it a couple of times you cannot talk about action without at the same time talking about the material conditions and that without looking at the social um, you'll never understand the material conditions and therefore you're not talking ever about any kind of action we could actually engage in and so I think um I think he ended that by saying she needs more marks, um, and um, I, I, I certainly agree with him, but it has something to do with what you were saying, namely operations of power, conditions of power, which I find in her notion of action, I'm, I mean I'm almost tempted to call it pure action, um, she always, yes, she talks about the the. Um, uh natality of it, the incipient character of it, um, the, um, as Heidegger might say it, the um dimension of it. Sure, but that always, because that heavy emphasis on that it's a new beginning, it's creative, it's um, you know, it, it's without telos and we, don't, we can't control it and we, we don't know where it's going to go, she, I think, loses sight that that takes place within a context, um, and I think she doesn't give us enough tools to um, critique in the Kantian sense, take apart and analyze and think through just what those conditions are. And I think he was pushing on on precisely that issue.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think. Well, I mean, well, I found myself thinking in that in the when I was listening to that conversation that. Um, there, there's, uh, you know, what what Arendt gives us with the distinction she makes, she takes away with the same distinctions. I mean, the clarity of private-public distinction, the clarity of, you know, labor-work action, uh, the clarity of the, the idea of the social emerging between the public and the private, I mean, they're tremendously powerful precisely because they are distinctions and, and, she, and she tries to hold them rigorously. Um, but of course, you know you can always show even internally to her own thinking that she can't and it's it sort of I mean and and Bernstein always encouraged us to do this you know it's kind of imminent critique of a thinker said okay understand the distinctions they're making and then watch how they they don't stick to their own their own distinctions
1: yeah I, I you know I was participating this last summer in the Collegium Phenomenologicum, and I was there the second week when Andrew Benjamin was lecturing and part of his discussion was about uh, the issue of action in the human condition and I don't remember who but one of the participants in my seminar when we were reading that text was pointing to this very kind of instability of these very powerful distinctions by pointing out that she needs something like for example forgiveness in order as it were to mop up the problems that her notion of action um, uh, brings to the fore, and if she had a slightly different notion of action, she wouldn't need a notion of forgiveness. So it's because this notion of action is unbearable that we need uh, a notion of forgiveness.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean that makes some sense. But I think what's what's interesting when you when you think about I mean obviously uh, Bernstein was tremendously influenced by his relationship with Hannah Arendt. He uh, says in stories all the time that he really came to the new school because she, uh, when she died or before she died, she really um, asked him to to consider it and, and to take care of of the of, of the spirit of the philosophy department at the new school. Which I mean, boy, he really lived up to that <laughs> to that task. But but I mean, they they definitely had a, a very. Um, uh, intense kind of philosophical relationship, but they uh, disagreed, you know, almost uh, uh, entirely in a lot of these particular, these specific kinds of issues. And it seems to me that Bernstein's, you know, unwillingness to uh, engage in dichotomies and in, in, in dichotomous thinking, um, and his, his, you know, I mean, I think that's his and you know, uh, uh, streak. Uh, deep Dewey and streak in him is just that. Whenever he sees a dichotomy, his his impulse is to say, "Well, it was originally together, <laughs> and you know, why are you trying to bring things? You know, you're creating this problem that you know they have to bring these things." Right. together.
1: Um, and that came up for a moment uh, this weekend, and and I think you're right. His his impulse is to say, "You're looking for a third thing to bring these two together." but you don't need that third thing because they're actually not apart.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, I mean, you know, you saw it with, obviously, Hegel is another really important figure for him, and, and uh, Karen Eng's paper on, on Hegel was 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 really good, bringing kind of, uh, looking at a, looking at Hegel from a kind of feminist perspective, and it's just, you know, he's been doing it for however many years, you know, he's setting, this kind of, people have a certain kind of critique of Hegel as, an absolutist thinker, and and all of that, and he just gets he gets going. That's not Hegel, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you
1: know. <laughs> He's never convinced me of that, but that is his that is his argument.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, well, one of the things that uh, that you and I talked a little bit about, and that emerged, emerged early in the in the discussion in the in the weekend, was um, the question of proximity and distance. The this emerged really, I think, a little bit out of uh, Megan Craig's paper, uh, who, who, where she really talked. Uh, she used some really good, powerful examples of cyberbullying, and uh, and compared made a comparison uh, with um, the kind of military use of drones. To uh, in a in, in a in a very virtual way, somebody presses a button, and and in a very real way, uh, missiles are launched that have deadly force. Uh, Comparing that also to bullying, where I think she had this really great formulation, where you know the, the violence of bullying is that the bully um, uh, destroys the victim from the inside, is able to really pick, you know, get at the, the, the deepest insecurities. Um, and she she uh, Megan Craig really uh, did a nice job of saying of showing some of the limitations of of the always on social media world that a lot of young people live in. Um, that doesn't give you a lot of distance for reflection, for you know even the question of sort of safe space that allows you to sort of gain a, a perspective and purchase on what you're experiencing. Um, and, and, and I think that was a theme that emerged early on.
1: Yeah, but also I, I've been thinking a lot about it and especially in relation to your paper on ethics in a digital age and and you know you're holding out the possibility that maybe, um, a, a kind of, as you just put it, cyberspace is what Arendt would call a space of appearances in, in which I can emerge and and be recognized as a political actor. Um, and um, so thinking about that in relation to uh, Megan's paper, the, the interesting thing about cyberspace is that one, at one and the same time it's both too close and too far. Um, that is the sort of always on um, means that you know well, for example, no matter where I am in my house or outside, I got your tweet today that you know should we have this conversation um, and so I mean that's really close, and when it's good we're all fine with that. Um, I mean, you and I often talk about how our our really strong friendship began in fact over email and um, so there is that proximity but then the question is does the distance and and maybe even also the lack of embodiment material embodiment that also uh, allow for a certain callousness, a certain um, lack of um, the kind of messiness that our actions have in the world when we're standing next to each other that, we don't see that messiness, we don't feel in, in a real sense. Um, we don't feel that messiness. And so I like the the playing with the ideas of proximity and distance, but I think when it comes to um, the web and, and various digital media, it's an interesting combination of both proximity and distance.
0: Yeah, no. I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, my in, in my argument in my paper was really to try to see if I could take uh, Bernstein's engaged fallibilistic pluralism and integrate it into a kind of um, ethics of philosophy in a digital age, where the, the, the virtues of uh, a certain kind of engagement, a commitment to, to pluralism, and uh, I think in a way most importantly a recognition of our own fallibility, uh, which from my perspective, and I think drawing deeply on Bernstein is sort of coming to terms with our own finitude and, uh, and, and recognizing that you know, you know, we have commitments and we need to advocate for those commitments, but that, but that we also always need to be prepared that those commitments are conditioned by a, a finitude and infallibility that we, that we can't escape. Um, and I, I think those, those values, uh, which are also, I think, virtues when practiced effectively, um, are tremendously powerful. But the issue is, you know, this medium, uh, these technologies, and I, I use the plural there intentionally because they're different technologies. That are doing different things. You know, obviously, Google Hangout. We're having a conversation that has some dimensions of the face-to-face, although, you know, we our pheromones aren't, you know, interacting with one another. But you know, I can at least see facial, facial, you know, gestures and things, which is different from text, which is different from Twitter or Facebook or Google Plus. Or so I mean, there's a, there definitely is a tendency for people to talk about technology in the abstract and not to get into the affordances and limitations of, of each of the specific technologies. And I think it's really only by uh, using them, by by putting them into practice, that we figure out what they can do to for us and what they're doing to us. Um, but I mean that that's something we can't just sort of think in the abstract about. We have to we have to engage in that uh, directly.
1: Well, and I know both you and I are um, were followers or fans or however you want to put it of Leo Laporte and um, Twit, and he just he has a podcast called Triangulation, and the most recent one he did with Robert Scoble, um, and Scoble was trying to convince him that if only he curates Facebook correctly, um, he would. he'll understand the power of it and the usefulness of it and so for about an hour he went through you know and all these settings you know you have to put friends into either close friends or acquaintances and you know so on and um and one of the reasons i stopped using facebook was precisely because it wasn't useful um but that's not a critique of technology that's a kind of imminent critique of what this, what this medium is capable of, and where its failures are, uh, Adorno would say, what is its promise, and where does it fail to live up on its promise? And, I mean, so I spent a couple of hours going through and doing what Scoble said, and I got to tell you, I still don't like Facebook.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I think Leo the port also, because I, I I have triangulation on the docket. I'm, I'm gonna. Uh, listen to that. Did you watch? Is it a video too, or did you watch? Yeah, it? it is
1: a video, and I think it's more important to watch it. I listened yeah. to it. Yeah, um, I,
0: I I was holding back because I thought I might need to watch it rather than listen to it. But but even I mean I I'm listening now to. Uh, the, uh, the current episode of uh, this week in technology, Twit, and uh, he, I mean, Leo says, yeah, I, I've deleted Facebook now from from my phone. You know, right. Even after the school experience. So I mean, I think it's it's exactly right. The, um, you know. A, a, I put I've put work into Twitter for example in terms of making lists and things in it because I I've, I've, I've gotten a lot of use out of being able to see what's happening locally what what's going on in let's say digital humanities or I've got a group a list of philosophers I've got a list of people I don't want to miss that you're on and, and other people who I just want to make sure I, I catch everything that they're doing um, so I use it you know that way and it's tremendously powerful for me but it did take time to set it does take time to set up to nurture to curate
1: right. And it's not always intuitively obvious for people who aren't—they just want it to work. Um, and uh, you know, you and I were all, some of the early adopters of computers and technology, and with WordPerfect and revealing codes and doing mail merges and so on.
0: That's right. Yeah, um, you never d- gonna live, let me live that down. That you, you introduced me to Word, and I was like, "Well, where, where are the where are the reveal co- codes?"
1: yeah and we were doing email over pine on unix servers and um, so people who don't have that kind of patience they they will get overwhelmed I think by these tools um and and um, so i I think that's true but I think also I mean the one question for me is is that new is that a 20th 21st century newness or Has this overwhelming always been the case? Right.
0: Um, Yeah. I mean, I think. Well, uh, that um, you know, well, a couple things. One thing with regard to the newness question. I mean, that's something that you and I have been talking a lot about, and I'm hoping that we'll we'll be able to. uh, We've written two articles together, and hopefully, we'll be able to write a third now on this sort of issue of technologies of writing and seeing if we could trace that. Uh, What's different about this uh, this Iteration of a technological advance versus uh, earlier ones, and, and where the continuity lies. I think a lot of work needs to be done in terms of uh, fleshing out a, a nuanced uh, vision of that. I mean, it's easy to say, "Well, this is like the Gutenberg printing press. This is like the emergence of writing in ancient Greek." A um, world, but it's uh, another thing to kind of try and catch that out in, in in some detail. So hopefully, we'll be able to do that. Um, Together, but I think that one of the things that I've been um, thinking a lot about is that you know there's there there really is um, a, a resistance for I'd say professional philosophers in general. I don't want to generalize too much, but you know people are starting to come around a little bit. But there's a tremendous um, tendency to sort of fetishize the face-to-face and fetishize a. a proximity in a specific kind of way and without wanting to denigrate that I mean obviously that's an important part of our lives and I wouldn't want to ever lose that, I mean I I get so much out of going to conferences, seeing you at conferences and and seeing others who I've been following along on uh, social media at at conferences and our relationships are enriched by the fact that we've had this ongoing conversation between the times we actually are together but I think we need to think a, a, a lot about you know, um, it's not an either or question. It's not, you know, if you're if you're using some of these technologies, it's not like you don't care anymore about you know face to face conversations.
1: Right. And I I think that um, I, I think that we've forgotten that um, our relationships were never exclusively about face to face meetings. Um, I mean we we've had relationships th- throughout history with people who were distant sometimes and near other times and um, and that you know I never confuse the fact that you tweet to me or tweet to a public and I receive it as you know sitting down as we did the other night in a bar having a drink um, right. and well and then one of the things
0: that I think really important from my perspective is, and it's an ongoing conversation you and I've had is, you know, I really appreciated the, the checking in with you about, okay, well, how am I appearing in, right. these, in, these, in public this way? I mean, you know, you're, it's very difficult, I think, to see exactly what it looks like, what your online presence looks like uh, from someone else's perspective. I think those conversations are really important.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, one, uh, you, you've you done a lot of thinking about this and writing about it, but I, I have a friend, he was actually a former, well, I won't go, I, I don't want to name names, um, but um, on Twitter, um, he was appearing as quite a jerk, um, and he had only one Twitter account, and so... This had implications on his professional life, um, invitations to conferences or to speak, and so on. And um, so I finally convinced him. And also, he was allowing students to to follow him. Um, I mean, wow! I, I guess you can't really allow that. Um, you can shut off your account, but um, and I convinced him. You know what? If it's fine if you want to talk like that with your friends. I mean, you and I could sit down and talk smack about some philosopher or something, but he was not aware of, he was actually, and here is where I think you're right, he was appearing in public, and he was appearing in public as a jerk. (laughs) Uh, And uh, his solution was, uh, because that was part of his personality, was to create a professional Twitter account, and his, you know, friendly t- Twitter account.
0: Well, I mean, I think one of the things I've been thinking a lot about it uh, here at Penn State, and in my role as associate for graduate education, and and in the, the in the department too. Although I want, I'm thinking broader than just philosophy, is you know we really need to help our graduate students uh, think about you know where they how they can use these powerful publishing platforms um, to create to create and cultivate a professional presence that will open doors up for them rather than shut them down. I mean, um, you know, just getting students to um, begin to talk in out loud about their research process or about uh, the kind of work that they're doing, beginning to get them to tweet out or curate links associated with some of the issues that, find, that they find of interest. You know, just doing some of those basic things can really um, help them establish a presence that that can be uh, really important for them in their future career.
1: Yeah, and also expand their their web of of people who are working in similar fields and um, can generate you know new issues, new excitement, and so on. No, I I, I think that's all true. And and. I think again, um, your your issue of um, uh, affordances and limitations is really important to to think about. I mean, there 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 is no reason to to well. First of all, the blanket critique of technology, I think, is is metaphysical. I think, <laughs> um, and it, I think it's as much as you want to tell me Heidegger uses the term essence, Weizen in, in, a, in a, a critical, and he sort of reorients it, um, to say that there is an essence of technology and on the basis of which we can critique all technology I think is the old gesture of metaphysics and as Reiner stroman would say, that's a very old and very boring story. Um, exactly so I I I think you're right and I think also I mean there are other philosophers one could go to so I mean I'm not an expert but a kind of Deleuzean model of a kind of flows and networks of power and and power and nodes and so on is more in line with your issue of affordances and limitations um, uh force and resistance than I think um, other models and so I think that there are philosophers out there who would give us a, a lot of models um, for engaging in a critique not a criticism and rejection but an actual critique of all sorts of media of all sorts of technologies um, and I I think that's really important
0: yeah absolutely and I mean I think one of the things that we um, that came up in relationship to uh, uh, my talk too was the, the questions of, uh, of, of the material conditions of, of the communication platforms that we're dealing with, so things like Google and, and Facebook and Twitter and the global economic uh, forces that are at work in, in, you know, and embedded in those uh, modes of, uh, of communication. I mean that's something that I, that I didn't address explicitly in, in my paper, but it's something that you know really uh, needs to be thought about in in, um, in because, uh, you know nuanced ways because you know well you and I would talk about you know feeding Google <laughs> all of our information so we could get you know better Google now uh, and now I feel like I'm channeling like uh, Jeff Jarvis from This Week in Google or something but uh, but and, and there's a real value in that but I think one of the things that they don't talk about on the in This Week in Google uh, at all really, which is uh, a podcast about the cloud, is uh, they do come to they do talk about it, but they don't have a critical stance toward the the global capitalistic forces that are at work on them, that in fact we are the product of this. Yes, we do get a lot of value out of it, and I'm certainly not sticking my head in the sand and saying I'm not going to use this stuff, I'm using it. But we need a whole lot more information about the algorithms that are at work here, uh, and 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 we need ourselves to learn more about to become more algorithmically literate in in terms of thinking about how these um, these technologies are, are working on and how they're monetizing us how their um, how how their their affordances and limitations are really driven by a market.
1: Yeah, and I think you know the the more you learn about. Um, uh, Various programming languages, various uh, programming styles, and um, algorithms in general. Um, I mean, we're not yet at the point where um, there are binary decisions. You either go this way or you go that way, and we can't yet deal so well with a, a kind of you you can't write a program that deals very well with messiness and so these platforms um are sort of um, they they make certain things possible by also denying the possibility of other things and when we float on the beautiful graphical user interface that's on the top all of those decisions are hidden for us. Um, and we don't know what we don't in fact, we don't know what decisions have been made um, for us and not. And you know, I think now, just a very simple example, the, the rumors are out that the next Windows, whatever it's going to be called Windows 9 or whatever, is going to have the possibility of multiple virtual desktops. Well, Mac OS 10 has had that for, I don't know how long. Linux has had it almost since the beginning um but there's an example of a decision has been made and that decision affects your workflow so for example i i have a dual monitor setup right now and when i'm replying to an email on one screen i can have a a, a calendar open on the other i can have four desktops and switch back and forth between them and that I find is a helpful way to to organize my work it might not be for everyone but the point is Windows had made that choice it's not for you or you're not gonna have access to it and so those kinds of decisions are being made all the time and I think we need to know what decisions have been made and what decisions haven't been made which is why I'm an advocate for free software because all of that then is available in the open
0: yeah, absolutely, and, and, you know, the, and the need to be uh, transparent about it. I think um, one, of, one of the things that, uh, in, particularly regarding this issue of decisions that are made on the technical level that you don't really realize, uh, I think I mentioned to you this weekend, this uh, book, You Are Not a Gadget, by uh, Jaron Lanier, and, and he, he makes the point there in, in that book that, um, uh, that in fact, you know, the decision to use the MP3, as the, as, the, as the standard for music files really was uh, a privileging of an atomistic note mode, you know, a piano kind of mode of, of musicality which takes uh, notes in their atomic individuality um, something that resonated with me as a, as, as, as somebody who uh, loves to take issue with the modern critique of atomic individualism uh, and, and or not take issue with that critique but actually level that critique um, but that's a, that's a technical decision that was made about the MP3 pl- player and uh, file format that uh, has had tremendous impact on the quality of music, the different kinds of, the, the possibility of music files uh, that I'm sure did not occur to people at the time as a decisive decision.
1: Right, yeah. And so then the question is how many of these are being made all the time in the platforms we use? you know, every single day.
0: Well, right, not only that, how, how uh, what about more pernicious kinds of decisions? What about um, issues of, of gender and issues of other issues of diversity and power that get coded into the programs themselves? Right. Uh, you know, the forcing uh, someone to choose between male and female on questionnaires. These kinds of issues are, you know, things that, well, the database needs to have this. It needs, it needs a decision. Obviously, you can create more. Um, you could put a scale on it. I mean, but but you know those. You can't pretend that those issues are not uh, at the level of code. And so we also need to be thinking about you know, what is happening at the level of code.
1: Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. Facebook had that early on where they, for gender, they had only male or female, um, and. You know, while for relationship they had, you know, married, single, whatever. It's complicated. Um, there was no. It's complicated for the question of gender. Um, it's the
0: same issue with regard to uh, the the question of forcing people to use their real name, their actual name, in, in on their profiles. I mean, there's a whole set of really interesting, and important issues that um, mm-hmm. I think those of us with training in the history of philosophy, with training in philosophy more generally. Um, have uh, some some insights or should have some insights uh, in those in those questions and and should should help um, bring them to bear on some of these issues. But sh- we should do that in a in a way that's as prepared to listen and learn as it is to sort of <laughs> uh, teach and advocate. Because I think one of the issues that I was trying to articulate in, in my paper was with from the perspective of of fallibility. Is you know we, we can't as as people trained in philosophy come into these conversations and sort of, in, in the same mode of a sage on the stage and a teaching method or something, you know.
1: Right, but but also to come back to something you said earlier, um, I think mm-hmm. the the criticisms of various uh, web uh, technologies and other um, electronic technologies, the criticism fails to remember that those decisions also are often implicitly made in meat space um, so I mean just to think uh, we have men's and women's bathrooms right and so it's not like in meat space everything could be wonderfully ambiguous and we, you know we live in the, the world of, of wonder of beautiful ambiguity um, there are social structures political structures that inform, that have already made decisions for us um, in exactly the same way, and there are digital technologies that can also be liberating from those very decisions that are made in meat space. To look at the issue of scholarship for a moment, I mean, I've long been um, really fascinated by the production of critical editions, and so. When I look at a critical edition, and I mean, most of the things you can see behind me are critical editions of Occam's works, um, those editors made decisions. And I don't have access to the data uh, uh, that they used in order to make their decisions. I mean, there's a critical apparatus, um, sure, but we have technology now to put all of those manuscripts online, and that in fact, you don't have to make a decision. You could curate all of them um, and let let the reader make the decisions. Um, and so, um, it it goes both ways in the sense that meat space has its own decisiveness, its own problems with ambiguity, and we should analyze and critique and understand those. And also on the other side, digital technologies sometimes have um, liberatory potentials.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think just the, the the range of this conversation we've had is a is a good testimony to uh, the kind of the spirit of uh, Bernstein's teaching and his thinking. Because uh, we really we've ranged from specific philosophers to the history of technology, and I, I definitely, you know, Bernstein always joked around about the fact that you know. Uh, I helped him out with his computers at a time when uh, computers were just uh, just getting started, and he, he certainly uh, has always been very concerned about issues of globalization and, and other things. But it but in a way, I think the the transformative uh, technology of the World Wide Web and the, um, the 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 affordances and limitations that bring with them that that's that that came very late in his life, and he hasn't you know focused his own attention uh, uh, on that uh, partly because I think you know in order to do it in a in an effective way you have to you have to use the the technologies to, to figure them out
1: yeah well and also part of our finitude is we have our own affordances and limitations and we can't take on everything
0: that's exactly right and I think uh, it was really wonderful to have the time to, with him this weekend I mean. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, was transported, transported back into the graduate, uh, graduate faculty building in the new school, and uh, with, I mean, his his mind is is sharp, and he is really, um, you know, just continuing to teach. I mean, just the things I learned from him this weekend are a testimony to that.
1: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly.
0: Great. Well, thank you for uh, joining the digital dialogue.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This has been. The Digital Dialogue. The Digital Dialogue is produced under a Creative Commons non commercial share and share alike license. You can find all the episodes of The Digital Dialogue on www.cplong.org, where you're invited to listen and leave comments and engage with other listeners. The Digital Dialogue also has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash digital dialogue. This has been The Digital Dialogue.